Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17. We continue looking at Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, as it is called, where he's in Athens and he was surrounded by all of those idols and he saw those. He was greatly disturbed and he began to proclaim to them about that unknown God that they had set an idol up to. Uh, it uh, begins in verse 22 of chapter 17 and goes to the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Last week we finished up in the middle of verse 25 there. We looked at 24 and 25. We looked at the fact that it says that God who made all things is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. We saw that very clearly. We looked at the fact that he does not dwell in temples made with hands. All right, that's where we want to begin a little bit this morning. He does, he's a God who does not dwell in temples made of hands. He is the creator is what we saw last week. He created all things. And Paul is addressing these people, and he needs to make sure that they understand that this God that he is talking about is different than the gods they worship, is different than the idols that they are worshiping and, and that all are set up in all through Athens. And one of the reasons he, one of the ways he does that is this next phrase found in verse 24, that not only is he the Lord of heaven and earth, but he does not dwell in temples made with hands. False gods, idols, they're small. They live in places. They live in contained places. They live in temples. They live in buildings. The Bible teaches us that God is not able to be kept in a temple. He is way bigger than that. The Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once, totally and completely. Not a part of him here and a part of him there, but God is completely there and completely here. He is everywhere all at once. One of those most amazing doctrines. Let's look at a couple of verses that teach us that. Go to 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Paul is wanting to make sure that they understand that your gods are tiny. This unknown God that I'm teaching you about, this God is massive. He is big. He is huge. 
He is adequate. He is sufficient. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6. <clears throat> They're talking about the temple that is about to be built. And it says this in verse 6, But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? And it's, it's important that this teaching was, was shared at this point because they're about to build a temple for God. So if you're going to build a temple for your God, it stands to reason, does it not, that your God would live inside that temple, that there he is. And I will go and I will find him in that place and I will worship him, him there because that's where he is. And so it was made very clear that we're going to build a temple, but this temple cannot contain God. That the only thing this temple is going to be good for is to burn incense in. It's going to be a place of worship. But God is not going to live in this temple. God is way bigger than that. And it was made very clear to the Old Testament saints that that was the case. Chapter 6, verse 18 of Second Chronicles Chapter 6, verse 18. Same idea, but God, but will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And the idea of the Bible is very clear, is that God is way bigger than anything we could ever build for him. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. I know that last week and this week we're going through a lot of different verses, but man, Paul is teaching so many cool things, and, and we really need to understand where he's coming from and completely understand his teaching, so we want to look at some of these verses. Isaiah chapter 66, it says this, beginning in verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And the Lord himself declared, you can't build a place to contain me. I made it all. I made it all. I am the one. I am too big for these things. Psalm 139. Go to Psalm 139. and It's a psalm that you know, you're familiar with. But it's, it's a good psalm to remind us about who God is and the fact that he is he's, uh, omnipotent and he's omnipresent and he, he, he's remarkable God. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 1. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I, remember, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike, darkness and light are alike to you. Excuse me. 
For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's wombs. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What a great passage of Scripture that declares that God is everywhere. You can't get away from God. Jonah learned that lesson, didn't he? Jonah thought, God's here, I'll go there, and it'll be fine. And he found out that you can't get away from God. And then go to the New Testament, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he makes this declaration beginning in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is everywhere. And yet God is right here. It is one of the most overwhelming, amazing truths that the Bible teaches us. That God is absolutely everywhere. He encompasses everything, everywhere. And wherever you are, God is. And that should be a life-changing task, uh, uh, truth. That should be a thought that absolutely changes the way we go about our lives. Wherever God is, wherever I am, excuse me, God's already there. He's there. One of the mistakes that we make even as believers is we think that we gather together and we come here to meet with God, and to a certain degree we do, but, but really we're not meeting with God here. We're continuing to be with God here. We're with God at home. We're with God in the car. We're with God at work. We're with God at school. We're with God everywhere we are. When we're recreating, when we're playing, when we're worshiping, when we're obeying, we're with God all the time. Everywhere you are, God's already there. And so that should, that should make us think about our lifestyle. That should make us think about our actions. That should make us think about what we do, how we think that we can hide from God. We think that we can hide our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts. We cannot because God is who God declares himself to be here. He is that absolutely overwhelming. Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 17. So Paul says in teaching them who this God is that they have declared as the unknown God, he says in verse 23, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The next verse. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. Now, this is another important thing that Paul is teaching them because they are worshiping a bunch of idols. They are worshiping man-made idols. These are idols that man created, man came up with, man made. They carved, they formed, they set it on a shelf, and they said, there's our God, let's worship this one. And so Paul is making sure that, that they understand that the God that I'm telling you about is not a God that needs anything. He is the God that provides everything. Let's look at a couple of verses for that. Go to Psalm 50. 
Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And it says this, beginning in verse 9 of Psalm 50. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. That is God declaring, I am way different than you. And you should pay attention. Psalm 104. Psalm 104, beginning at verse number 14. It says this, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. God makes it all. God is the one that is in charge. He is the one who gives. Flip on over to Romans chapter 11. God does not need us. We need him. Romans chapter 11. Verse number 36. It says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. One of the things that we need to understand about God is that he is all-encompassing. And there's nothing, there's nothing on this earth that he did not make. And there's nothing on this earth that he is not in charge of. There's nothing that is on this earth that did not come from God in one way or another. God made it. God did it all. Two more passages. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it says in verse number 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And then in James chapter 1, we read that God is the one who gives all gifts, all good gifts to men. God is the one who is in charge of all these things. You know, we read these verses, and, and, and these are some powerful things that Paul is saying. And then when we read the verses to back it up, we, we begin to get a picture of God. And what we see of God is that he's pretty amazing. He's pretty overwhelming. And I think that we said this last week probably when we were going through some things. We said, and why would you want to worship a God who is not? Why would you want to worship a God who is inadequate, the, the, the God that was made by people? Why would you want to worship the God that can't supply, can't provide, can't create? And Paul is making sure that these people understand that God is the one who did it all and does it all. One more passage real quick, then we'll go back to Acts. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Because this is a pretty significant verse. Matthew chapter 5. And, and we want to look at verse 45. We'll start at verse 43 just because we don't want to jump in the middle of a sentence here. It says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45 then says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and, send rain, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God does it all. Not just for believers. And we can kind of get into that mindset as believers. We can say, yeah, we, we understand that God does everything for us. We understand that God has provided everything for us as believers. We have this special relationship with him, and God has done this for us. And that is true, and yet the Bible says that it's more than that. God does everything for unbelievers as well. God loves, we learn. God loves, the Bible says. And the Bible says that God loves the world, and indeed he does. And one of the proofs of that is the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. Crops grow for the righteous and the unrighteous. Body parts work for the righteous and the unrighteous. God provides. God is that kind of a God. And Paul is saying to these, to these folks who are worshiping all these idols, this unknown God that you don't know about, he's the one that is responsible for every single aspect of your life. Every single aspect of your life. This theological truth absolutely must dictate how we function on this earth. We can no longer think, well, God probably is pretty happy that I'm on his side. I do a lot for God. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I serve, I work, I do this, I do these other things. We need to get rid of that thinking. We need to understand that that's just wrong. Well, God should be really happy because I offer so much. That, that is not the case at all. The only thing that we can bring to this self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is our praise and our obedience. The Bible teaches us clearly that there is nothing. There is nothing you have that did not come from God. There is nothing you are able to do that did not come from God. It is all from God. That's what the Bible teaches us. So we can reverse that and we can ask the question, what is it that you have that did not come from God? What is it that you have that God did not give you? And as you start thinking about different things, we can debunk every single one of those every single time. Because if, you have, if you've learned something, it's because you have the ability to learn that you got from God. If you think, it's because you got the ability to think that you got from God. If you function, it's because you have the ability to function because you got it from God. This says that God gives us all breath and life and all things. That's what Paul is teaching them, that God gives us absolutely everything. He says in verse 25 of Acts 17, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He himself gives to people life and breath and all things. You want to think about how big God is? You think about that verse a little bit. And you think about what it is that that you need to be doing then for God. And you're going to read that verse and you're going to meditate upon that verse and it says that he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And you're going to think, what can I give God? I can praise him and obey him. That's what the Bible tells us that we ought to be doing. We can praise him and obey him. That's what we can give to God. And we read that verse, and we start to apply that verse, and we practice that verse, and we think, well, I need to be giving God a little bit more glory on a regular basis. Oh, I just took a breath. Thank you, God. Oh, I took another one. Thank you, God. 
thanks, God. Look, I moved my finger. Thanks, God. I thought. I spoke. I acted. I lived. Thank you, God. Now, I know that probably the majority of people in this room theologically understand and agree with the truth that we've been talking about this morning. If we were to take a test, and it was true-false, did God create all things? True. Did God make all things? True. Does God give all men life and breath? True. Does God give all people everything they have? True. Does God make it so that people can be who they are? True. We would answer those questions. And then we go live our lives. And somehow God gets lost. Because after all, we're living our lives. Look what I've done. Look what I've formed. Look what I've made. Look what I can do. Look who I am. And Paul is saying to these people, and he is saying to us, if you approach life that way, your God is too small. He is not like the idols. He is the God who made everything and is not served by human hands. He needs nothing, and he gives to all people life and breath and all things. We should probably just end that right there and just go home and think about that. That's who God is. That's what he does. He gave you your brain. He gave you your feet and your hands. Who made the eyes and the tongue and the ears and the nose? Who made the lips? Who made the body? Who made the wood? Who gave the intelligence to you to make the things out of the wood? Who made the parts and gave you the intelligence to be able to figure out how to put the parts together to create something? Who made the instruments and gave you the ability to blow and to, to move and to play and to push and to play the instruments? Who gave us the, the ability to write and think and to compose and put together, to share, to talk, to speak? You didn't do any of that on your own. God did it. And we as believers need to stop taking God for granted in this area. Oh, I just breathed again. Thank you, Lord. Look what God has done for you. Verse 26, this massive God that Paul is describing, it goes further. Before we get to verse 26, you remember that at the beginning of this message and, and, and for the last couple of weeks in Sunday school, we have been talking about the fact that it's not believing in God that is the issue, it's believing in a biblical God. It's believing that this is who God is because he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. That's how Paul's getting all this information so he can share this with these people that don't believe in their true God, that are worshiping idols. And he says, let me share with you the God who is a self-revealing uh, 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 God so that you know who he is. And this self-revealing God is saying, I am massive. I am way overwhelmingly larger than you think I am. And this next verse goes along with that. 
It says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He made from one person all the nations. Some of your versions will say he made from one blood. The idea is the same. Last week we talked about how the Bible refutes evolution over and over and over and over again. And here we are at another verse where God says, yeah, that theory is no good. I created. I made. I'm the creator. And the truth that he is stating here is this. God created the one and gave him a wife. And from them, the whole human race came. All of it. This would have gotten the attention of those in Athens because they believed that they were the special people and everyone else were barbarians. And this should get the attention of everybody because by and large we all think that our group is best. Our group is special. Our group is a little better. And everybody else is not quite as good. And what Paul is teaching us and what God is saying is that we're all the same. God made us all. And from one, God made them all. And that we are all related. We are all part of the human race. We are all part of Adam. We all go back to Noah's family. We all go back to Adam. Every single one of us. God created, God made. That is a remarkably large, big God that he did all of that. Those idols, they don't stand a chance, do they? Those false gods, they don't work. The Bible teaches us very clearly that the idea of multiple races is not a truth. We're all one race. Multiple cultures, yes. One race, yes. We all belong to one another, and we need to understand that in our lives today. He goes on in verse 26 and says, not only did God make all man, but look at what he did. This sovereign God, the Lord, as we talked about last week, the boss, he's the one who said, this nation goes here, this nation goes there, this group of people over here, this group of people over there, here's your boundary, here's your boundary, you stay there, you go there. It says in verse 26, not only did he create all these people, but it says, he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. God decided that. You were born, I assume, most of you, you right now, you live in the United States of America, you live in, in, in this part of, of the nation. Why? Because God determined that for you. Oh, I probably should thank him for that, shouldn't I? We owe it all to God. We owe it all to God. The New Living Translation says this, the last part of this verse. He decided beforehand when they, that is the nations, should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. The New International Version says, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. The English Standard Version says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries where they should live. 
The Bible teaches us that not only does God establish kingdoms and countries, but he establishes how long they exist and where those boundaries are. That's how much of a sovereign God our God is. He did all of that. He determined all of that. And here's the question. Would you expect anything less from the sovereign God? No. You would expect less from a God who wasn't really in charge, wouldn't you? Which would mean he's not really a God. But a God is going to determine all of those things. Let's look at some verses that talk about that. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. God has determined all of life. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. He set the boundaries. He did that. Daniel chapter 4. Go to Daniel chapter 4. After those real big books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 4. Verse 34. We'll do verse 34 and 35, and then we'll go to chapter 5. It says this, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say, What have you done? Chapter 5, verse 18. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whoever he wished, he elevated, and whoever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he became, behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. God is in charge. And we don't like that idea anymore. We are way too sophisticated for that, aren't we? We are smart. And we have connected the world together. We, all, we know what's going on everywhere, and we understand things far more than we used to, and we look at all of that, and then we read passages like that, and we think, really? I don't know about that. We need to know about that. We need to believe that God is the one who did that, that God is that kind of a God. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. We read this. Beginning in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock been taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. That is our God. Doesn't it make you want to go to heaven and be with him? Even so, come Lord Jesus. We tend to think of God as being way, way, way too small. And Paul is pointing out in Acts chapter 17 that he is a huge God. He is overwhelmingly powerful. Very quickly, let's go on in Acts 17. We won't, we won't go very far here, but it says this. So Paul has explained all of these things. He has said that, that God has done these things, and he, and he has worked what he has worked, verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of him. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children what Paul is saying here is this. God has done all of this so that people would look and say, there must be a God. There must be a God. And that is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans then, Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1. He comes over then and when he writes this and, and he says that, that in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 or verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was been made that they are without excuse. He says in chapter 2 the same thing. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the law, things of the law, these not having the law are a lot of themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What he is saying is simply this, God has done all of this so that people would look and say, there is indeed a God. I should seek after that God. 
I should seek after that God. And we stop here this morning and I say this to you, believer. You know there is a God. You understand that. That's not our discussion today in this place. But are you realizing how big that God is? Get him out of that little box you've put him in. Read the scriptures about him and see how big he is. And then go ahead and watch the news. Go ahead and listen to the talk shows. Take a breath and say, God, I'm glad you're in charge. It's not as bad as everybody wants you to think it is. God is still God. Don't allow, don't allow those people, don't allow them to take you to where they are in that respect. Your God is bigger than that. And, and let me just help you out here a little bit. He's bigger than the United States. Okay? Much bigger. It's okay. Our God is big. Paul is saying, this is the God. And he is something. This week, just rest in him. Enjoy him. Worship him. Thank him a lot. Oh, I just breathed again. Thanks, God. I just had the ability to put my foot on the brake and not run into that car in front of me. Thanks, God. I'm able to eat this food and digest it so I can have strength. Thank you, God. This week... Be consumed with thanking your God for breath and life. Father, we thank you so very much that you are magnificent and overwhelming. We confess that we do reduce you. We confess that we minimize you. We confess that we put you in a box. And we read passages like the ones we read today and we think, wow, Wow, was I wrong. You are bigger than we can imagine. You are bigger than we can comprehend. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit and these words from Scripture so that we can get a, a picture of it. But we recognize that that picture is even inadequate. You are so big and our minds are so small. May we worship, may we revel in you as this magnificent big God. In Jesus' name we pray.